1: Hi, it's Indira. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may be different by the time you hear this episode. So stay up to date with all the latest by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and it's time for the News Roundup. Let's get into it. The 2024 Iowa caucuses are just days away. And perhaps you remember eight years ago when then-candidate Donald Trump uttered these words two weeks before the Iowa caucuses of 2016.
2: They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible.
1: In federal court this week, Perhaps in an echo of that famous boast that the usual rules don't apply to Donald Trump, the former president's lawyers suggested that a U.S. president could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival. And unless the president had been impeached and convicted by Congress, Trump's lawyers continued, that president would be immune from criminal prosecution. We'll get into that and a whole lot more. But first, let's introduce our guests. With us for the roundup is Idris Kaloon. he's Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. Also with us is Benji Sarlin. He's Washington Bureau Chief at Semaphore. Thank you both for joining us. So let's check in first, though, on the presidential race, which is approaching an important decision point. The candidates are converging on Iowa ahead of the influential first caucuses on Monday when GOP voters will get their first official say on who they want to be as their nominee. Idris, just how important is Iowa's first-in-the-nation test for GOP electability?
3: Well, it's where all of the um, energy and enthusiasm and and most of the Washington press corps is at the moment. Um, But, you know, in in the GOP's history, um, Iowa's actually proven to be a worse predictor than uh, it has for the Democrats. So only a handful of those who have won Iowa have gone on to become the party's nominee. Uh, The caucuses have a much better track record among Democrats, where from about 2000 to 2016, everyone who won the Iowa caucuses went on to be the nominee. But I think in this case, uh, Donald Trump is so far ahead in the polls, and he might win by a margin that's overwhelming in the era of modern politics, that uh, this could be the case, uh, this could be the time when Iowa actually is the right predictor for who goes on to become the GOP nominee.
1: You make a good point, Adrees, that Iowa's GOP hasn't always been on the money, who now remembers Rick Santorum, but uh, that's another story. So, Benji, campaigning has been disrupted by winter weather in Iowa. A storm bro- brought record snowfall to Des Moines on Tuesday, and another storm is expected over the weekend. How might this weather affect voter turnout on Monday? Well,
4: we're already seeing disruption on the campaign trail. Uh, We had Nikki Haley just today cancel an event and made it virtual. We've seen just about every campaign has had some kind of event canceled or disrupted or changed. But it also is likely to affect... uh, canvassing you know door-to-door grassroots uh, work to try to turn people out and obviously it'll make people less likely to turn out if the weather is as it is now forecasted uh with wind chill in the negative 30s on caucus day on monday i mean like truly there is it's so much worse than any prior caucus that we're You know, it's hard to even compare it. Uh, And, you know, this is a race that already is not seen as especially competitive at the top. You know, every poll that's been out there has Donald Trump up by 30 or more. Uh, over, and it's largely a race for second place between Haley and DeSantis, which is extremely important. But is that enough to draw out lots of voters in, you know, what, what the National Weather Service now calls, you know, life-threatening weather, but in the Des Moines area, I'm not so sure. So mm. that is a definite wild card.
1: Well, you, you mentioned the race for second place. On Wednesday night, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley sparred in the last GOP debate before the Iowa caucuses.
5: Every time he lies, Drake University, don't turn this into a drinking game because you will be overserved by the end of the night.
4: We can play this song and dance. She has a record. She makes statements, and I think part of the problem with her her candidacy is now that she's getting scrutiny, uh, she's got this problem with ballistic podiatry, uh, shooting herself in the foot.
5: I wish Donald Trump was up here on this stage. He's the one that I'm running against. He's the one that I wish would be here. He needs to be defending his record.
3: Do not trust Nikki Haley with illegal immigration. That's like having the
0: fox guard the hen house.
1: Wow. Okay. The other remaining GOP hopefuls, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy and former Arkansas Governor Asa Asa Hutchinson, did not qualify for the debate hosted by CNN. Benji, what were your takeaways from the debate? Well,
4: it still is very much about trying to clear the field and get into a one-on-one with Donald Trump. I mean, the two candidates, uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, there was a section later in the debate where they got a little more critical of Trump. But for the most part, they were just digging deep, deep, deep into the oppo files they had on each other and just going over the minutiae of each other's records and trading back and forth and back and forth over who is lying about what. What's going on here is they've decided that it is far more important for one of them to come in a decisive second in Iowa in order to have any chance of taking on Trump in New Hampshire and beyond. And that's still where their attention is right now.
5: Hmm.
1: A new Reuters-Ipsos national poll puts former President Donald Trump firmly ahead of his rivals with 49 percent support from self-identified Republicans. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is in a distant second place with only 12 percent. But in New Hampshire, it's a different story. A University of New Hampshire CNN poll shows Trump still in the lead with 39 percent support among likely Republican primary voters. But Nikki Haley is right on his heels with 32 percent. Adrice in New Hampshire, Haley has managed to whittle down that gap with Donald Trump to single digits. That crucial first-in-the-nation primary is on January 23rd. What do you make of her progress? Could she catch up with or even surpass Trump in New Hampshire?
3: So this is the crux of Nikki Haley's strategy, and she was given a bit of a shot in the arm when Chris Christie... Um, who had been attacking Donald Trump most aggressively, had also been doing pretty well in New Hampshire. He dropped out of the race. Um, A lot of people who uh, support Chris Christie are the kinds of people who support Nikki Haley. She's primed to do well in New Hampshire because, um, you know, she does better among college-educated Republicans, and there are quite a lot of those in, in New Hampshire. In polling that uh, The Economist did last week, we saw that, you know, among college-educated Republicans, she does twice as, as better as, as uh, those without a college degree. But the difficulty is, and particularly if she gets a second-place finish in Iowa, you know, there may be some momentum, and then suddenly maybe New Hampshire is in contention. The difficulty for Haley is going to be, um, you know, her home state is South Carolina, which you would think, given that she was the governor there, that she would have a good chance of doing well. but the polls at the moment show that she 's pretty seriously behind uh, she 's about twenty eight points behind Donald Trump in her home state, obviously that could change if momentum shifts and whatnot. but you know the other difficulty that haley has um, you know the idea that if she were to do a one on one with Donald Trump that she might come out on top i mean Rhonda santos 's supporters are not um natural Haley allies. Uh, you know, if we look at their second preferences, half of them say that they would go to Donald Trump. So I think that, that that makes it harder for her. But certainly New Hampshire is the crux of her campaign. And she has been pretty upfront about that, even uh, mistakenly saying that to uh, before the Iowa caucuses.
1: Hmm. It's never a good sign to be losing in your home state, of course. Uh, meanwhile, the Republican field is thinning out. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie dropped out of the race at a town hall event on Wednesday. The announcement came. Right after a hot mic moment just before the event, in which he was caught speaking ill of his opponents, specifically former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley,
0: she spent sixty-eight million so far just on TV. Spent sixty-eight million so far, fifty-nine million by DeSantis, and we spent twelve. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment? You know, and she's going to get smoked, and you and I both know it. She's not up to this,
1: Benji. Chris Christie has been vocally anti-Trump during his campaign, but he doesn't seem to have much faith in Trump's strongest GOP challenger, nor does he seem to be putting his weight behind the person who looks to have the best chance of upsetting um, the big 800-pound gorilla in the race. Why do you think he said this, and what will Christie's absence mean for the race?
4: well chris christie's absence to start is is important because it is a chunk of voters that, as mentioned unlike DeSantis uh, his supporters seem much more likely to go to haley these are these are strong anti trump voters they're they're you know some of them will describe themselves as anyone but Trump you know that are the, some of the voters that our reporters have been encountering uh, so that that's a big deal right there but But Christie's uh, approach this whole time, which has not been very successful for him, but has been an interesting kind of critique of the race, is that everyone has been running against each other instead of Trump this entire time and waiting for some last second when they're all going to pivot to really attacking Trump in a concerted way. And it's not entirely true. You know, you hear Ron DeSantis actually has quite a long list of attacks on Trump these days. They're just very, you know, ineffective for the most part. Uh, um, But it's been pretty late in the race, whereas Christie was making this warning at the very beginning of the race, you know, six months ago, a year ago, that it's not enough just to steal votes from each other. You have to drag Trump down. And he has a point in that Donald Trump's polling has just gone up and up and up this entire time. All the success that Haley has had, for example, in knocking out other candidates, you know, a lot of those votes have gone to Trump already in polls. He, his national lead has just continued to expand. Not at not a single moment in this race has one candidate figured out a way to make an attack on Trump that sticks. And it's a lot to ask that even if, say, Nikki Haley wins New Hampshire and gets a chance that you can do that all at the last second.
1: So, I mean, I have to ask Adrice, the former New York gov- New Jersey governor is hugely media savvy. He knows how microphones work. How sure are we that this was really a hot mic slip up?
3: you know in our newsroom we were having that debate ourselves but yeah you're right he's been in the public eye for for 12 years so who knows
1: <laughs> all right well we're going to head into a quick break here but we'll be back with more of the news roundup in just a moment stay with us
2: this message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp when you keep your stress bottled up it can eat away at you therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.
1: So Donald Trump wasn't on the debate stage in Iowa this week, but he was plenty busy in court. On Tuesday, federal appeals court judges here in D.C. heard defense arguments that the former president should be immune from prosecution on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The panel of three judges pressed Trump's legal team to defend claims that their client was shielded from criminal charges for acts that he says fell within his official duties as president. Benji, did it surprise you that Donald Trump chose to be in court to hear this appeal, and how did it play out?
4: Uh, I was not surprised. And the reason is that Donald Trump, as he has said lately, is trying to go to as many trials as possible. And you might say, well, that's a strange thing. It's just a few days before the Iowa caucus. Shouldn't you be out there shaking hands in the cold and you know giving giving big rallies? But the truth is Trump's legal strategy and his political strategy are one at the same at this point, which is arguably the single most decisive factor in his victory this cycle has been that he's discovered Republican voters get extremely protective of him whenever he seems to be in legal jeopardy. They donate to his campaign. They rally, you know, his support surges in polls. This has been true since his very first indictment uh, in Manhattan in March. And the campaign is really leaning into it this way, going repeatedly to, you know, to court dates that he has, you know, no no need to be at. He could be having an event in Iowa, New Hampshire if he wanted. And so in that context, yes, he's just trying to show his face as much as possible.
1: Hmm. It took some probing from Judge Florence Pan to pin down Trump's lawyer, John Sauer. But in the end, Sauer made this claim that former presidents are absolutely immune from prosecution, even for murders they may have ordered while in office.
5: I asked you a yes or no question.
1: Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution?
5: If he were impeached and
1: convicted first. And So so your answer is Is, no. My answer is qualified yes. As generally understood, Idris, impeachment is a political process, not a criminal one. But Trump's legal team seems to be linking the two. Why?
3: So the basic answer is that you know Donald Trump's lawyers are very effective at generating new previously unheard of legal arguments that would basically have the effect of getting Donald Trump off of a criminal conviction. Uh, what's interesting here is that the lawyers are making an argument that is the exact inverse of the one that they made in the aftermath of January 2021. Hmm. Back then, uh, Donald Trump's uh, team was arguing that he could not be impeached or convicted because he had since left office after January 6th, um, and that he could be held to account in the criminal courts. Um, what is, lawyers are saying now that they're you know, being brought in front of the criminal courts is that actually what should have happened is Congress should have um, impeached him and convicted him then if they wanted to to uh, reprimand him. And now that they missed their chance, they cannot do so. Um, as, you know, the judge pointed out there, um, that logic um, leaves a lot of things open. Uh, it leaves the potential of SEAL Team 6, as she said, assassinating a political rival. And, and Trump's lawyer um, slightly floundered um, there, um, I, I don't think that, you know, that's something that they sincerely maybe hold on to. But, uh, you know, it might be interesting post-November post, post uh, November 5th what, what they think Joe Biden can or can't do.
1: Hmm. After the hearing, Donald Trump spoke to reporters and he issued this warning.
2: This is the way they're going to try and win. And that's not the way it goes. That'll be bedlam in the country. It's a very bad thing. It's a very bad precedent. As we said, it's the opening of a Pandora's box. And it's a very... That's a very sad thing that's happened with this whole situation.
1: so Benji, part of this is that Trump seems to be you know threatening that if you don't agree with me, if you don't support me, um, we're going to release you know the dogs of hell or something. There's going to be utter chaos if if I'm convicted. And on Wednesday, the former president was pressed again on Fox News about whether he would denounce political violence, especially people rising up in anger against any um, you know, legal action against him. How did he answer, Benji?
4: Uh, ambiguously, which is what he always does. Trump loves having this air of menace this air of violence, that maybe something bad will happen. He's not saying he's doing it, but maybe it will happen. And then he can quickly, you know, kind of squirm away from it if anyone asks on the details. So in this case, he quickly pivoted when he was asked to just attacking Joe Biden. He said, Joe Biden, quote, is bedlam, whatever that means. Uh, but this is something we've seen many times before and we know where it, where it leads. I mean, in 2016, he said there would be riots if he lost the nomination and that bad things would happen. Is he telling people to riot What bad things? It's all just ambiguous enough. You know, at the time, many Republicans, including people he was running against, who are now major supporters, were, you know, accusing him of inciting violence and warning that something that sounds an awful lot like January 6th would happen one day. And, you know, those warnings turned out to be fairly you know, we know what happens at this point when he says, for example, proud boys stand back and stand by at a debate. You know, the proud boy leader is getting 20, 20 uh, 22 years in prison now for a seditious conspiracy uh, involving, you know, January 6th. You know, it's like there's always ambiguity to the statements themselves, but we do know the results at this point.
1: Mm-hmm. And yet, of course, to this point, the former president himself has not been held accountable for stand by and stand back or, you know, his incitement on January 6th. So Idris... When can we expect a ruling from the federal court? And if it doesn't go Trump's way, what happens next?
3: Yeah, we we don't know for sure. But, you know, the judges, as you can tell there, uh, were pretty skeptical of that argument. Um, So I imagine it won't go Donald Trump's way. Uh, But the decision is expected to arrive, um, you know, ahead of the March 4th trial date when Donald Trump will be held to account for the crimes related to the attempt to overturn the election, um, in 2020. Um, and, you know, his team has, has tried to throw quite a lot of arguments, uh, at the judges. And, and, you know, this is an unprecedented situation for America. The constitution is not really written, uh, to deal with, uh, a president who might do the kinds of things that Donald Trump did. Um, and so it has produced all these novel constitutional arguments that judges are having to sort through. Um, we've seen, you know, a, a re renaissance of interpretation of, uh, provision of the 14th Amendment about whether or not the president um, is even uh, liable or able to be on the ballot because he might have per- participated in insurrection. Um, you know, this, this, is, this is something that's going to occupy judges. And ultimately, um, it's such an important question that a lot of this is going to end up before the Supreme Court as the, um, you know, cases about Trump's ballot eligibility are going to um, in the coming
1: weeks. All right. Meanwhile, we're lucky enough to be joined now on the line by CNN national politics reporter Eva McKen. She's joining us from cold and snowy Iowa this weekend. Eva, thank you so much for joining us. And we'd love to hear from you first, aside from how cold it is up there, what are you hearing from Iowans ahead of Monday's caucuses?
5: Well, thanks for having me on. You know, a lot of them are are showing great resolve. They're still showing up to Campaign events to hear from these candidates ahead of the caucus. But there is some anxiety, especially among the campaigns. You know, this is slated to be the coldest caucus day in history on Monday, below zero temperatures. And so it might take a little bit more to get folks to actually come out of their homes uh, and show up and turn out. Although Iowans, they have a lot of pride in this process. The ones that I speak to, they think it is a huge honor that Iowa goes first. And so there are still a lot of people that are engaged and ready to do whatever it takes to get out and caucus on Monday.
1: So, Eva, what are the top questions that you have for voters who you'll be interviewing in Iowa this weekend, those who brave the snow and the subzero temperatures?
5: Oh, well, I asked them why this process is so important to them. Uh, the ones that uh, we meet that are uh, moving on from former President Trump, I'll ask about uh, why, because there are some undecided voters here between Nikki Haley, Governor DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, who may have actually previously voted for uh, Trump in 2016, maybe switch their vote in 2020 for President Biden, actually quite a few voters like this and then now are looking for a new candidate entirely. Um, so I, I asked voters about uh, their motivations for looking for an alternative and there are a number of policy issues on their minds as well, pretty in-depth questions that you'll hear from these Iowans about where the candidates stand on China uh, on the future of social security in this country, on restoring civility in politics. They come armed to these town halls and forums with uh, lots of questions for these folks, as some of, the, some of these Iowans are still vetting these folks and haven't made a decision as yet. So, Eva, what
1: you've described sounds like a beautiful showcase of American democracy at work right there with, you know, people coming in with real questions about issues. Given how the polls seem to indicate that former President Donald Trump is going to run away with the Republican caucuses, how much do the Iowa caucuses really
5: matter? Well, Iowa has known historically to surprise the country in the past. So uh, while the polls are somewhat instructive, uh, they aren't the the be all and end all. President Biden actually routinely says that polls don't vote, people do. So I think that there is still a lot of anticipation for Monday. Uh, Everyone could sort of be humbled by whatever the outcome is if the polls turn out uh, not to be accurate. Uh, But listen, the former president does still have a lot of uh, favor Within uh, the uh, among Republican primary voters, all of his many legal challenges have only seemed to strengthen those uh, that support. Uh, sometimes, albeit different events, different forums, the Iowa Faith and Freedom forums, and you'll speak to voters and they'll say, "We didn't know if we were going to support the former president." But now we think that we will because of all of these indictments that he faces. So this argument that he makes about the, the deep state, it's, it seems to be penetrating down to voters who believe hmm. um, these these arguments and are more inclined to support him. But listen, there are folks that are looking for alternatives. They may have liked some of the conservative policy positions that Trump was able to advance when he was in the White House, but they don't have an appetite for all of the chaos that he inspires. All right. That was CNN national politics reporter Eva
1: McKend in cold and snowy Iowa. We'll look forward to seeing you next time back in D.C., where at least it's it's above freezing here. Thank you so much, Eva. Thank you. So. We're going from having talked about one courtroom chamber in D.C. Let's talk about another chamber in New York. Donald Trump was in court again on Thursday for closing arguments in the civil fraud trial against him. Earlier in the week, the judge had rejected the idea of the former president addressing the court, but he reversed himself later, permitting Trump to speak. Benji. Again, the former president attended this hearing, which he did not need to do. Is it your sense that Trump cares more about cultivating a sense of grievance and victimhood than perhaps even he cares about that maybe more than the actual outcome of the trial?
4: Well, short answer is yes, but a little longer is that, you know, Trump has always treated his legal situations like political situations, even before he was a political candidate. Uh, But uh, especially now, you know, it's always been about, uh, he frequently has attacked the judges, uh, you know, claimed everything's a conspiracy against him, claims he's being unfairly uh, persecuted. Um, You know, if you remember 2016, you know, he spent weeks getting involved in a feud with... uh, it wasn't a feud, it was just, you know, abuse of uh, Judge Gonzalo Curio. He was overseeing the, you know, fraud case at, quote-unquote, Trump University. And his play was basically just to say a bunch of racist things about the judge, you know, that because of his Mexican heritage, he wanted to rule against him. And you'd imply from there, well, how can I be fairly treated by this judge? He was surely biased after I said all these racist things about Mm -hmm. him. You know, it's kind of like an old Trump playbook. But now this is, you know, this is a, a state case But in some cases, the the political and legal strategy is the same. I mean, if he becomes president again... He can derail the federal cases against him, mm-hmm. and it would also make it much harder to bring some of these state cases against him while he's president. You know, just on a practical matter. So it, his his legal strategy is not like the legal strategy for someone like you or me. There are unique factors because of who he is and the possibility he might become president again.
1: Mm-hmm. So President Biden was out on the campaign trail to this week, and a Monday stop in South Carolina was briefly interrupted by protesters. Yes. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. right. Adris, what was Biden doing in South Carolina?
3: So he was giving a speech at uh, the church in Charleston, where um, a few years ago in 2015, there was the horrific mass shooting and and a couple of the congregants were were killed. That was obviously a huge.
1: Yeah, nine black church members were killed in 2015. That's right.
3: Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, And Biden at the time was was deeply moved by it. Um, He mentioned that he was returning there. He had come um, only 22 days after Bearing his son, uh, Bo Biden, who had died of of cancer, so it's it's uh, it's an important place for him. South Carolina is an important state for him personally. Um, he has a lot of uh, attachment to it. It uh, was incredibly important to him in twenty twenty in, in terms of securing uh, the nomination. But what he was there to talk about was um, not just uh, that, but also uh, you know the, the risk that the country was facing, and he tried to connect. Um, the two events to, to all of what is going on at the moment. So, um, And he's going to be back as well, so he's, he's planning to visit South Carolina quite a lot.
1: All right, we'll talk more about that after the break. Stay with us.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel, clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life, for 20% off your first purchase, go to vioricom NPR. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, Their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash Commercial, a member FDIC. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So there's been a fair share of drama here in D.C. this week. It turns out that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was in the hospital for several days before the White House and other top officials were told. Austin was admitted to the intensive care unit at Walter Reed Medical Center on January 1st following severe pain and complications from prostate cancer surgery in late December that he had not told the White House about. Benji, what happened?
4: What happened was some total breakdown in communication here that they really are still just beginning to get to the bottom of. I mean, the inspector general is going to start investigating, but even days after it came out that they had not informed uh, that, you know, somehow the White House had not been informed about uh, Austin's hospitalization, they were still finding out pretty much in real time with the rest of us, even why he was hospitalized, which was that complications from, uh, from, surgery to treat prostate cancer. So they're really still figuring out where this breakdown is. I mean, the White House has made clear that this is totally unacceptable even as they have not called for uh, Austin's resignation. But uh, yeah, they're not just reviewing what happened here. They are now reviewing, you know, their process for for uh, transferring power and notifying the White House across every agency. Uh, so that that's how big a deal this is right now.
1: Well, you know, let me follow up on that, because if the defense secretary goes to the hospital, and it happens to be that this week we actually had military strikes on the Houthis in Yemen, who is responsible for informing the White House in Congress? And should Austin himself or an aide have told the White House and the so-called Gang of Eight leaders in Congress about his surgery before it even happened in the first place? I mean... Blatantly so.
4: <laughs> I mean, this is pretty much the White House position, right? They said this was not optimal. I believe was the quote from a spokesman. It's just that um, somehow it should have been made clear who who is in charge at any given moment. When is he just uh, you know in a hospital or unavailable? But also, as you mentioned, especially now, you know, regardless of whatever technical rule there is, just you know, in effect, they're now the. Defense secretary now is defense secretary during a time of multiple military conflicts across multiple regions, all of which were extremely volatile. And as you mentioned, you know, involved a new, you know, bombing campaign that just started yesterday. Uh, yeah, there's obviously some breakdown here when folks are finding things out days later in the middle of, a, you know, a military conflict.
1: Adrees, mm-hmm. from a national security standpoint, this is a huge deal. So what is next for Lloyd Austin?
4: Well,
3: you're you're right. It's a it's it's an incredibly huge deal. Uh, the Secretary of Defense is the civilian uh, who is in charge of of the military. Uh, the formal military chain of command runs through him. Uh, obviously, he can delegate some of those powers uh, to the deputy secretary, as he did, but um, incredibly important that people know uh, where he is and what he's doing. Um, he's not formally in the uh, nuclear uh, command structure. The president basically has that authority on his own. But uh, nonetheless, he's an important person you would want in the room uh, if anything like that was happening. And also just generally, um, you know, cabinet secretaries tend to have just less privacy. Uh, you know, we got advance notice of a surgery that Merrick Garland was having, of uh, colonoscopy that Joe Biden was having. Uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg had to clear his parental leave before with the White House before he took it. Um, there is a kind of expectation of privacy that maybe Lloyd Austin has, but that isn't um Mm -hmm. Uh, you know met with reality and and what comes with him the white house so far is supporting him but a lot of republicans a lot of democrats are pretty upset on capitol hill and at least one democrat has called for him to resign um so i don't think it's going to go away the white house has suggested has you know commissioned a review they've signaled that they're unhappy uh he might be able to to survive if only to avoid a a confirmation fight that that would be looming Mm -hmm. but uh you know it's a it's a It's a pretty big and and quite weird um, occurrence, uh, really, for all of this to have happened.
1: So a big story on Capitol Hill this week is that once again, a government shutdown is looming. On Thursday, Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he's taking the first steps to pass a stopgap funding measure before next Friday's deadline. Benji, how close is Congress to a deal this time around? And what's at stake if a compromise isn't reached?
4: Well, in theory, they basically have a deal, <laughs> which is sort of the problem right now, which is that, you know, th- this has been the story of the entire Congress, which is that there's, uh, you know, there's a very small House Republican majority. Uh, they face a Democratic-led Senate. They face a Democratic White House. And they also have their own internal divisions. And that's made it extremely difficult for basic kind of so-called must-pass legislation to happen. Legislation to that needs to raise the debt ceiling earlier, for example, which is what really was responsible for knocking out Kevin McCarthy. Uh, legislation to fund the government, like the prior uh, CR that got us here. And what's happened every time is that uh, there's because there isn't really an effective republican majority you know none of these bills that end up passing pass with can pass on republican votes alone they often need you know 100 200 democrats to pass many republicans will vote no on them um it's very hard for republicans to negotiate because if you send someone like mike johnson out and he announces he has a deal on you know the most important part how much they're spending you know in in a new funding agreement uh, and conservatives could then say, we reject that deal, it's not a real deal, we demand you change it. If he caves, I mean, it doesn't really matter who's speaker. You need someone who can negotiate on behalf of the House and, you know, stick to it. That, you know, Otherwise, why bother even negotiating with them if they can't stand mm. by a deal? Mm. So this is just a continuation of the problem they've had the entire Congress. It's not... It's going to be resolved probably either with something like the deal announced passing or Mike Johnson being ousted and Mm -hmm. another round of chaos to choose his successor.
1: More drama on Capitol Hill. Yeah, we did also have a very surprising visitor on Capitol Hill this week on Wednesday. Hunter Biden popped into the House Oversight Committee hearing as they met about holding him in contempt of Congress. Last month, the president's son refused to testify at a closed-door deposition as part of the committee's impeachment proceedings against his father. But Hunter Biden said he would testify publicly.
6: You are the epitome of white privilege, coming into the Oversight Committee, spitting in our face, ignoring a congressional subpoena to be deposed. What are you afraid of? That was South
1: Carolina Republican Nancy Mace addressing Hunter Biden during his unannounced visit. Adresse, Hunter Biden left after 15 minutes. Why did he go to the hearing in the first place with his attorneys?
3: Well, he went to make a statement, clearly. So, like you said, he refused to uh, participate in a closed-door hearing. Um, He said that he uh, worried that his words would be selectively leaked um, if that were the case. So he insisted that he only uh, testify in a public setting. Um, Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. There was a hearing to hold him in contempt. It's interesting. I didn't really think of Nancy Mace as a white privilege um, sort of (laughs) believer, but but there we are. Um, And then he left uh, as Marjorie Taylor Greene um was speaking uh which also uh caused some some hoopla um i imagine the white house would rather all of this just go away but uh it seems like we will have um some of the spectacle continuing over the months ahead
1: mm. Aviation safety officials are still investigating what happened when a door plug blew off a Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft belonging to Alaskan Airlines just minutes after takeoff from Portland, Oregon last Friday. A boy's shirt was sucked out of the hole in the plane along with several phones and personal items during the terrifying incident, but fortunately, no one was seriously hurt. The FAA has grounded all of Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes with door plugs for the time being. the order has caused Alaska Airlines and United to cancel upwards of 2,000 flights. Idris, how is this affecting business?
3: So I, I took a look at Boeing's share price uh, before this, and it's actually down only 10 percent, which is not what I would have expected. Um, you know, the 737 MAX was supposed to be a huge part of their, um, you know, lineup. It's, it's, I think the majority of their orders are actually those planes. Um, they had a huge kind of public relations disaster on their hands when two of the 737 Maxes that they had put out crashed. That was due to fault in the autopilot, which caused, you know, the noses of the planes to tip down, um, and result in two tragic crashes. So obviously Boeing wanted to move on from that. The fact that these, um, door plugs, um, have been loose. And I think the FAA, which mandated an inspection of all planes that met this uh, orientation, found a couple of other planes in which there were similarly loose bolts. Um, You know, the FAA is pretty, pretty upset. Um, They said that this incident should never have happened. It cannot happen again. They said that they would audit uh, the assembly line. Uh, More fines might be in, in place for Boeing. So it's It's uh, really not good news, but um, I mean, you know, at least shareholders for the moment don't seem to think that it's an existential threat to the company.
1: Well, in terms of taking responsibility, here's Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun on his company's response to the incident.
3: We're going to approach this, number one,
0: acknowledging our mistake. We are going to approach it with 100 percent
3: and complete transparency every step of the way.
1: So, Benji, the FAA is investigating whether the plane was built safely, whether it matched the approved design. How could the agency's findings affect Boeing's future as a leading plane manufacturer?
4: Well, it's pretty big. I mean, obviously, safety is the most important part of the brand in any plane. But also, how long this investigation goes, how long planes are grounded, whether it discovers an issue that's potentially more systemic as they face more scrutiny. I mean, there's a lot of money to that. I mean, when the 737 was previously grounded from 2019 to 2020 after the two crashes that Idris mentioned, the uh, total cost reported by Boeing from the incident was $20 billion with a B. So, you know, we're not talking about, even for one of the largest corporations in the world, we're not talking about chump change here. I mean, this is, you know, when your core business is planes and your brand new plane is, you know, being grounded, it's not good news.
1: Hmm. Some big news also from the NFL. Now that the regular season is closed and the first-round playoff matchups are set for this weekend, the coaching shuffle has begun. Among those now out of a job... Bill Belichick, I never thought I would say those words. He's out after 24 seasons and a record six Super Bowl titles with the New England Patriots. But his tenure was mired in controversy such as Deflate Gate. by the end and his falling out with quarterback Tom Brady, whose departure paved the way for the team's poor record for the last three seasons. Meanwhile, in college football, longtime Alabama coach Nick Saban has retired. He coached there for 17 seasons and won six national championship titles, wrapping up one of the greatest coaching careers in the history of the college game. So let's end with some news from the world of finance and Bitcoin, among other cryptocurrencies. On Tuesday, the Securities and Exchange Commission set its account on X, which all of us remember as Twitter, was hacked. The hackers took the opportunity to post in part, quote, Today, the SEC grants approval for Bitcoin ETFs, meaning exchange-traded funds, for listing on all registered national securities exchanges. Adrees for people like me, who don't normally deal with finance, what does that post mean?
3: Um, well, the, the SEC did later approve, um, uh, you know, Bitcoin ETFs, but uh, an ETF basically lets you uh, easily invest in the value of an underlying asset without having to uh, trade the thing itself. So you can invest, for example, in the S&P 500, you buy an ETF that basically tracks the value of the stock market over time and what the um, – or, you know, you can you can track the value of oil without actually having to literally go on a commodities market. Um What the Bitcoin ETF lets you do is essentially lets uh, ordinary uh, investors um, track more closely the actual value of, of Bitcoin as part of their portfolio. So previously, uh, the uh, SEC didn't allow these ETFs to actually use the underlying bitcoins um, as as part of their kind of currency. So it was very hard to actually track, and you had to actually go to an exchange um, to to actually buy and sell uh, these things, which meant that you had to pay transaction costs, et cetera. Um, I don't know that I'm actually shedding any light on this, but uh, all in <laughs> all, <laughs> uh, uh, it's to say. If if you want to uh, get some of the upside of, of Bitcoin's uh, uh, increase in value or share in the loss of its uh, next crash, then uh, it will be more easy for you to do that.
1: <laughs> Benji, do we know who was behind the alleged hack of the SEC account and what their motivation would be?
4: Well, the motivation between a lot of these hacks, and this is in line with a lot of similar ones is a more sophisticated version of, of them, is to, and it really says something about Bitcoin as a product here, probably cause a uh, momentary spike in demand for Bitcoin. You know, the ETF news would be seen as, you know, oh, it's about to bring in a lot of new investment money. And then they probably would try to very quickly, you know, sell Bitcoin at the higher level or have some kind of option prepared that enables them to take advantage of it. Um, You know, it's just classic. It would be like stock manipulation. It's just like a classic kind kind of fraud here. Um, and it's, we still don't know entirely how it happened, though. It looks like X says that there were just basic security measures that the SEC did not take. They did not have two factor authentication, you know, which would require someone to, even if they managed to figure out a password,
5: Mm -hmm. you know,
4: get a, get a phone number. Uh, but what the X did say is that this was not run through them. No one hacked into the corporate side of X in order to make this happen. This was through Mm -hmm. the SEC. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, more news from last week. NRA chief Wayne LaPierre resigned from the gun rights organization last Saturday. That comes at the start of a New York civil trial against the NRA and its executives, including LaPierre. NRA attorney Sarah Rogers characterized him both as a visionary and valuable leader, but said he was not always a meticulous corporate executive. Um, You know, Benji, by now, LaPierre's personal spending of NRA money is well known, and the NRA has lost about a million members since his financial scandal was revealed. How has that diminished the power of the gun lobby, or is it as strong as ever?
4: Now, it's worth pointing out. It's diminished the power of, when we say the gun lobby, yes, the NRA. But the NRA is not The only part of the gun lobby, you know, in many ways, uh, First Amendment advocates have had success after success after success. They have a Supreme Court that's more amenable than ever to their demands. They've managed to, uh, you know, rally Republicans for the most part uh, uh, to their side. But the NRA, even before these financial issues, was dealing with um, competition from groups like Gun Owners of America that were even further right than they were. So don't think just because the NRA as an organization drops, that means, you know, gun rights advocates are going to be any less
1: powerful. Mm. Our thanks this week to Benji Sarlin, Washington bureau chief at Semaphore, Idris Kaloon, Washington bureau chief for The Economist, and thanks to CNN's Eva McKend, who joined us from Iowa earlier in the show. Thank you all for joining us. Coming up next on the global edition of the News Roundup… The U.S. and U.K. follow through on their threats, bombing sites in Yemen after weeks of attacks from the Houthi rebels there. The International Court of Justice hears a case brought by South Africa accusing Israel of genocide in the Gaza War, shocking violence in Ecuador, and as Taiwan votes this weekend, the U.S. urges China not to interfere. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get to.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: Let's turn now to the global edition of the News Roundup, and let's meet our panel. Nancy Youssef is national security reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Nancy, always great to have you on.
6: Always great to be with you. Thank you.
1: Alex Ward is national security reporter at Politico. He's also anchor of National Security Daily, their podcast, and author of the forthcoming book, The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. Welcome back, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Michelle Jamrisco is Bloomberg's senior White House reporter. Michelle, welcome to the program. Thanks, Derek Great to be here. We'll start with the big story overnight in Yemen. U.S. and British troops bombed 16 sites in the country held by Houthi rebels. This is after weeks of the Iran backed Houthi rebels targeting ships in the Red Sea with drones and missiles disrupting a key global shipping route. The Houthi forces say they're acting in support of Palestinians. Today, their chief negotiator, Mohammed Abdul Salam, wrote this online about the Americans and the British Quote, They were wrong. If they thought that they would deter Yemen from supporting Palestine and Gaza. Targeting will continue to affect Israeli ships or those heading to the ports of occupied Palestine, end quote. Today, another Houthi leader said the group has already launched retaliatory strikes on U.S. and British military ships in the region. Nancy, you've been following the Houthis' attacks on ships in the Red Sea and these U.S.-U.K. strikes overnight. What is next for all of these players involved?
6: I think most immediately the question everyone is looking to get an answer to is whether the Houthis were able to target commercial ships again in in the Red Sea, and if so, how quickly and how forcefully. Um, As you noted, despite more than a dozen strikes overnight, the Houthis have vowed to keep targeting um, Israeli ships and that they assert that the answer to these um, issues is not um, to target them, but to end the war in Gaza. Right now, the U.S. is conducting a battlefield assessment to determine what was hit and if anyone was killed. Uh, Some of the largest shipping companies are taking a sort of wait-and-see approach to determine whether the strikes make it safe for them to return to the Red Sea. And I think the final sort of actor we should be thinking about are other... regions, uh, other Gulf nations. Um, Only Bahrain was sort of a participatory nation in yesterday's strikes. We heard from the UAE today that there are concerns about the effects of these strikes on maritime activity in the Bebid Mendeb. Will we start to see more engagement by the Gulf or hear, alternatively, their frustrations with the conduct of these strikes? Hmm.
1: Alex, some 34 million people live in Yemen, and over the past decade, they've experienced one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. More than 375,000 people were killed in fighting between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia. Tell us more about the fragile ceasefire there and how these U.S.-U.K. attacks on the Houthis might affect that.
7: Yeah, the U.S., uh, the Biden administration since the beginning of You know, entering office has been trying to keep a ceasefire or make a ceasefire happen and make it stick between uh, Saudi Arabia and the the Houthis that are mostly in control of the northern part of the country. Uh, In December, it looked like they had another agreement that there's going to stick and it has been mostly um, holding. However, one of the concerns of of striking the Houthis now – is that it opens the floodgates of them using all means to pressure the US and its p- allies and partners um, for the strike? So, one fear is maybe the Houthis start attacking Saudi Arabia again, um, possibly some oil refineries or, or other, you know, the UAE, even, uh, which has also been part of that Saudi led coalition against the Houthis. Um, As Nancy rightly noted, you know, most of the activity and most of the fears right now, what could happen in the maritime domain, but nothing is to stop necessarily the Houthis from reopening uh, the fight against the Saudi-led coalition. And that would, of course, then lead to Riyadh and possibly even uh, the UAE to go, hey, America, you know, this is this is a result of your retaliatory strikes against the Houthis, um, you know, please help us out. And the last thing the Biden administration wants to do is be dragged into anything else mm-hmm. uh, in the region. And so there's a possibility, or a somewhat remote one at this point, but a possibility that that is yet another avenue that could attract more U.S. attention in the region.
1: Right, right. Well, let's zoom in on the war in Gaza, which you referred to. People are talking about whether that is leading to an all-out regional conflict. As you rightly point out, there is all-out regional conflict. Already happening. Israeli military operations in Gaza continue, largely focused on the southern city of Khan Yunus and urban refugee camps in the territory center. In the three months since October 7th, which is when Hamas led that horrific attack on Israelis across the border, more than 23,000 Palestinians have been killed, 70 percent of them women and children. That's according to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza. The United Nations says that 85% of Gazans have been displaced from their homes. The blockaded tiny strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea is one of the most densely populated places in the world, home to more than two point five percent 2 million people, um, apparently 1% of whom have now been killed. The UN says that only a trickle of food, water, medicine and other aid is getting through the Israeli siege and that without significant intervention, Gaza could face famine within weeks by early February. After two more journalists were killed in Gaza this week, the Committee to Protect Journalists says at least 79 media workers are among more than 23,000 dead in that conflict. Israel says some 1,200 Israelis have been killed, most on October 7th, when Hamas brutally attacked communities in the south, and about half of the approximately 240 Israeli hostages taken by Hamas remain captive. On Thursday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken wrapped up his fourth visit to the region since the war started before boarding the plane to Cairo, uh, in Cairo, Blinken spoke to journalists. Here's some. Uh, here's what he talked about. Although there is some background noise, just to warn you.
3: As we have
7: uh, everywhere throughout this trip, we've been focused on a number of key objectives. Uh, first, preventing the conflict from from spreading. Second, getting more humanitarian assistance into people who need it. Three, increasing protection for civilians. Four, getting hostages out. And finally. Uh, continuing to uh, support Israel in its efforts to make sure that October 7th can never happen again and so that this conflict can end.
1: Michelle, just how successful was Blinken's visit to the region in achieving all those objectives that he just laid out there?
8: Well, I think that still remains to be seen, Indira, as we've seen in recent weeks, several officials uh, following on uh, Amos Hochstein last week as well, have been visiting the region, trying to urge, uh, you know, as as he said, these these five different objectives here, and really treading this delicate balance between offering support for Israel, continuing to say that they have a right and responsibility to wipe out Hamas, while at the same time feeling pressure internationally, as well as at home, to kind of try to limit, uh, help Israel Limit the civilian casualties. Have them target, uh, better target the the uh, Hamas targets instead of uh, allowing for or some of these, uh, you know, casualties on the side, and and really trying to achieve one of the main objectives for Americans is to get those hostages
1: out. Nancy, during um, Tony Blinken's visit, he spoke to several Mideast leaders about getting them on board with general planning for reconstruction and governance in Gaza after Israel's war with Hamas ends. How important is that cooperation?
6: Well, I think it's clearly important to the United States. He made an eight-country tour. And the key message that he was delivering is, one, we want to hear from um, Arab nations and leaders. We want their input in sort of a post- War period, what it looks like, who's leading it, and that the U.S. envisions a role for the Palestinian Authority in governing both the West Bank and Gaza. I think there was agreement on that. The challenge, as I see it, is whether uh, the, this plan can move forward with Netanyahu in charge. While this week, for the first time, we publicly heard him say that Palestinians can't be sent ab- abroad, there was also really um, assertive uh objections within Israel about the proposals put forth by the Arab states. And so can you reach the kind of solution that the Arab states have told the US I'd like to see as long as he's in charge? even while uh, blinken was on the ground we heard from example israel's national security advisor that the the idea of a uh, palestinian state as the arab nations are calling for it is not something that they're going to be on board with hmm.
1: well blinken met with the leaders of turkey jordan qatar the united arab emirates saudi arabia bahrain and the palestinian authority alex what sort of buy-in was he able to secure from them
7: not much. I mean, what was interesting about this trip is that Blinken kind of flipped the way he usually does it. He started, you know, he started in Turkey, but then he went to Arab countries to try to get a sense of what they were willing to do. And the most he really got that was somewhat concrete was from the Saudis, where they said, "Look, if you can convince Israel that there will be a path to a Palestinian state, um, we would consider, you know, maybe providing aid to Gaza, and also we might do the normalization with Israel." And so this was supposed to be a, a bit of a carrot to the Israelis to switch course. Um, Israel is not. a Aligned with this idea at this point uh they are still reeling of course from october 7th the netanyahu government which is pretty far to the right and pretty anti-palestinian um recoils at any thoughts of, of a two-state solution um so they are at this point not wholly interested in that view and we should note by the way that the saudis have an interest in putting that idea forward mm-hmm. um, because they want you know a defense treaty and and, and civilian nuclear program and arms deals um but that said, you know, it's it's an offer that Blinken has made, it's one that was basically kind of already on the table. He pushed it again. Doesn't look like much progress was made, but if you talk to the uh, Biden administration, they'll say, "Look, it's better to have these conversations than not."
1: Mhm. Michelle, the US has yet to secure buy-in from Israel's far-right government led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for revitalizing efforts at self-governance for the Palestinians and a two-state solution. Where do the U.S. and Israel diverge on their visions for a post-war future?
8: Well, Andrea, I think I would just go back to what Nancy mentioned regarding uh, resettlement of Palestinians. I think the U.S. is steadfast in saying Gaza will remain Palestinian land. And we know that U.S. officials are aware that Arab partners in the region have no appetite to take on refugee resettlement coming out of this conflict. I mean, I remember asking Jake Sullivan, the, the National Security Advisor, about uh, the potential for some sort of deal around what they would do with refugees coming out of Gaza. And he, he squarely answered that that's not part part of the plan. Resettlement is not part of the plan. They are steadfast with Israel that this is is not an option here and they're not moving on it. On the other hand, we had two Israeli ministers earlier this month calling for resettlement of Palestinians outside the Gaza Strip. This follows other Israeli officials' comments encouraging sort of the voluntary emigration of non-Israelis out of Gaza. And so this latest instance with the two ministers actually triggered a rare and and pointed rebuke from the State Department. We had the State Department's Matt Miller saying it was at odds with what Israelis have told the U.S. regarding the government's positioning, and it's, it's just really unacceptable to the U.S. So the other X factor here, of course, and, and another thing that Nancy mentioned, is the prime minister has pretty abysmal approval ratings. They've cratered, but with a war going on, it's very hard to see how they could conduct a vote to force him from office. Mm-hmm. So it's important also to unpack what the government might be saying versus what the Israeli population would support post-conflict.
1: Mm-hmm. Alex, the U.S., meanwhile, has been urging Israel to shift to more precise operations specifically targeting Hamas. UN agencies say that as recently as last week, their aid convoys were fired on charges the Israeli government has denied. A listener, Beams in Minnesota, writes to us, if Israel were acting like a civil society, they would be taking seriously wounded Gaza residents and they would open up their hospitals to the injured. So tell us What is Israel doing about these charges and how dire is the humanitarian situation there?
7: Uh, It's very, very bad. I mean you laid out some of the statistics earlier. I would say that just yesterday I spoke with uh, Senator Chris Van Hollen who traveled to Egypt and Jordan and saw how the uh, aid was getting into – Gaza, I should say, was not. He was noting that there were massive warehouses – full of water testing kits um, medical kits required for, for baby for, you know for, for baby birth um, there were other you know water desalination uh, kits and what would happen is a lot of these trucks you know that's all full of that's all the rejected aid a lot of trucks that try to get in um, don't do so because even though they have ple pre-clearance there's some guard at some checkpoint that decides you know some things could be used as weapons in one case that that stuck out to me tents. Were, were taken back because apparently the metal poles could be used as weapons. Mm. So this is one reason, not the reason, but a reason um, why, you know, aid isn't getting in as often. And so you have the Israelis not really changing their policies too much. I mean, they have opened up a, a new crossing at Karim Shalom and there's hope that they'll open up another one at Eretz. But mostly speaking, you know, the Israelis are continuing – yes, they're doing more target operations, but, you know, the – the uh, opera- the campaign itself continues, aid isn't really getting in, and you do have aid workers saying that the deconfliction mechanism, which is to say, you know, trucks or aid workers are here, please don't bomb here, that that is the most broken they've ever seen in any conflict. Mm. So it's, uh, it's, it's dire already, and it's more dire by the day.
1: Hmm. On Thursday, meanwhile, South Africa formally accused Israel of committing genocide against the Palestinian people and pleaded with the United Nations top court in The Hague to order an immediate halt to Israeli military operations in Gaza. Here are some of the remarks from the lawyer representing South Africa.
5: The international community continues to fail the Palestinian people despite the overt, dehumanizing, genocidal rhetoric by Israeli governmental and military officials, matched by the Israeli army's actions on the ground. Despite the horror of the genocide against the Palestinian people being live streamed from Gaza to our mobile phones, computers and television screens. The first genocide in history where its victims are broadcasting their own destruction in real time in the desperate so far vain hope that the world might do something.
1: Scathing words from the lawyer representing South Africa at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, Israel has vehemently denied the allegations. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu said, quote, this is an upside down world. The state of Israel is accused of genocide while it is fighting genocide. The hypocrisy of South Africa screams to the heavens. The case against Israel has been fueled not just by the war, but by statements that were made by various members of the Israeli government after the October 7th Hamas attacks. Take a listen to these remarks as compiled by the BBC's Paul Adams, starting with Israel's president, Isaac Herzog.
7: It's an entire nation out there. That is responsible. There's the hardline Minister of National Security, Itamar Ben-Gavir, <laughs> interviewed on Israeli television, saying of the Palestinian population, they're all terrorists and they should be destroyed. In Parliament, the Deputy Speaker, Nisim Baturi, said, we all have one common goal, erasing the Gaza Strip from the face of the earth.
1: So, Nancy, what is South Africa looking to achieve in this case? And can it actually stop the fighting from continuing?
6: So the case that they brought forward essentially says that there has been a breach of the 1948 uh, convention against genocide. And so they make sort of five points um, towards that, uh, including um, the mass killing of Palestinians, bodily and mental harm, forced displacement and food blockades and destruction of the healthcare system. And so while the ruling on whether this is a genocide would take years, what they're seeking in the meantime is something that's called um, a provisional measure. And that would be something that would come through in a matter of weeks and it would... essentially, if they find that to be the case, would put pressure on other signatories of the Genocide Convention to put, Israel, put pressure on Israel to um, stop its uh, war in Gaza. The challenge, at least in the short term, is the, the past efforts to impose past findings of provisional measures, for example, Myanmar, have not been successful. And so w- long-term, South Africa is seeking... Um, the the classification of what's happening in Gaza right now as a genocide, short term, it is seeking some legal means through the principal judicial organ of the UN to stop the fighting. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, Nancy, on the one side, there's the Court of Justice, but there's also the very important Court of Global Public Opinion in this case. So how do you think this all stacks up in terms of how Israel's actions are being seen on the world stage?
6: interesting because I think this case in particular sort of brought forth some of the core issues to this. And you even heard it in some of the legal arguments that were happening earlier today. Um, One of them you spoke about earlier, which is intent. For a case like this to be seen as a genocide, South Africa must prove intent. And what we've heard um, in some of those quotes from Israel is that that's rhetoric that doesn't actually reflect policy. Um, The other thing uh, that they are going to, I think, try to show on the Israeli side is that this is self-defense. And so what I heard from readers this week as they were talking about this case is that this was the first time that there was sort of a detailed case made about the conduct of the war to have a discussion in a legal setting about what Israel is doing. We've heard the U.S. call these claims faceless. But I think it has spurred a discussion about um, the prosecution of a war in such a dense urban environment after a nation has come under attack. What is sort of the acceptable form of conduct? And we've started to see a discussion around that through this case. Well, uh,
1: Nancy, one of our listeners, Kit, has a question for you that just came through. He says, Israel has apparently destroyed almost all the buildings and infrastructure in Gaza. Will they rebuild it? And if not, who will rebuild and who will pay for it, Nancy? Nancy,
6: well, we haven't heard um, a, an answer to that up until now. One of the things about these cases and these laws is that they are often written, frankly, in favor of um, nations that are coming under threat, um, proper sort of traditional militaries. And so Israel's um, argument throughout the war has been, that we have d- conducted these strikes in self-defense and legally, under, for example, the laws of armed conflict, um, that if there's a feeling that the country has come under threat, that they can strike. Um, there has there has, doesn't have to be a long case sort of made for why a building is being struck, and so none of these laws really deal with who's responsible um, for rebuilding when it turns out that wasn't a target or it was a legitimate target, but it hurt other civilians. And so that's one of the reasons you saw um, Secretary Blinken in the region this week, his fifth trip to Israel since the war began, is to try to come up with a way to, to rebuild who would rebuild? Where would the rebuilding happen? Um, because for all the case law on how to conduct war, there's very little on how to rebuild in the post-war period. There is no framework.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's switch over to South America and let's take a listen to to what happened in Ecuador this week. <laughs> Those sounds were broadcast to thousands in Ecuador this week after a gang of more than a dozen armed gunmen took over a public television station in the country, taking its staff hostage before police arrived and arrested the attackers. Ecuador's president has since declared an internal war against several drug trafficking gangs that he has classified as terrorist groups. State officials say these gangs are responsible for recent car bombings and the murders of two police officers. But the truth is that drug-related violence has been escalating in Ecuador for months. Michelle, why are we seeing this steady and troubling explosion of violence in Ecuador, which until recently was considered a bastion of stability in the Andes?
8: Yeah. And for many Americans, this must seem like it came out of nowhere, especially for those who help make up typically the largest source of Ecuador's foreign tourism. But if we look at the root of this, we had Ecuadorian President Noboa releasing a plan earlier this month to reform the prison system. They've had issues uh, for some time. And just after that plan was released, a pair of notorious drug lords escaped from prison. Noboa started that nationwide manhunt, as you mentioned. So chaos has really ensued. And we're, we're at this point where the nation is essentially on lockdown. And as of when... Wednesday, the government closed public schools, government offices, a lot of private businesses also shutting down, the military saying it has the authority to kill gang members. So just a very sad story for a nation that found a silver lining, really, uh, in tourism post-COVID. But now they're dealing with economic crisis, organized crime surge, the murder rate doubled last year, and it's not getting any better. So Ecuadorians uh, had already ranked violence as their number one worry uh, in the recent presidential election a few months ago um, that put... uh, 36-year-old Naboa in power, and, and now it just seems to be escalating out of control.
1: You're right, Michelle, that the Galapagos are a favored destination for American tourists, not to mention Quito and Guayaquil. Guayaquil is now considered incredibly dangerous. Alex, the country's prisons have descended into chaos. As Michelle said, the president declared a state of emergency Monday when Adolfo Macias, one of the country's most powerful gang leaders, escaped from prison. What is the government doing to actually bring this? under control.
7: Uh, well, one thing Noboa, President Naboa has decided to do, as you said, is have an internal armed conflict. And he said he would neutralize the over 20 gangs um, that he designated as terrorist organizations. And so he's looking at actually an example from El Salvador, where President Bukele has decided to curtail civil liberties, build massive prisons, escalate uh, police action, <clears throat> You know, basically throw away some laws in order to uh, go after you know drug groups, and Noboa is is basically interested in that kind of plan. That's the fear is that he would really go uh, above and beyond what is already kind of uh, in the legal recourse for police action. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 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 initial worry is that there's going to be. A very sort of militarized component to this reaction. Now you of course there would need to be. These are gangs, they are armed, they are taking over hospitals, schools. Um you know, TV stations, et cetera. Uh, But the worry that people have is that, you know, these kinds of military actions should normally be paired with something else, Mm -hmm. some sort of um, drug reduction programs or infrastructure development, basically taking an example out of uh, Columbia's playbook. We haven't heard that yet. Frankly, you know, it's early, but that is the worry that at this first point, you're going to see an uptick of violence to hopefully over time, Uh, downtick violence, but you don't know if Naboa is going to eventually reverse his curtail of civil liberties because that hasn't really happened in El
1: Salvador. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. Let's switch over to Asia, where elections are taking place in Taiwan on Sunday in the shadow of pressure from the People's Republic of China, which considers Taiwan to be a breakaway province. Taiwan has been self-governing since 1945 after breaking away from communist rule and has held direct presidential elections since 19. Ninety-six, And this just out from China's defense ministry's Zhang Xiaogang, a very um, saber-rattling statement that just came out in which he said, the Chinese People's Liberation Army maintains high vigilance at all times and will take all necessary measures to firmly crush Taiwan independence attempts of all forms. Nancy, remind us about the politicians who are running and what is at
6: stake. So there are three major candidates running. There's the current vice president, and his party is known as the Democratic Progressive Party for being more openly pro-independent. There's the Nationalist Party, which is, and their candidate is a former police officer and current mayor of New Taipei, who's advocating for closer relations with China. And then there's a new party that emerged in 2019 called Taiwan's People's Party, and the former mayor of Taipei is the candidate for that. There have been polls that have been conducted that show that uh, Lei Cheng-ti, the vice president, is a leading candidate, but only by a few uh, percentage points. I should note that um, polls tend to close two weeks before elections, so it's unclear how reliable those um, results are. But either way, we know that it's a very close election. Um, Remember that uh, Taiwan's president, um, her term expires, and so she had to leave after finishing her two-term limit. Should um, her vice president win, it would be the first time that uh, a party has secured a third consecutive term. And what's at stake is the future of... um, um, Taiwan's relationship, both with China and with the United States, the current president has been quite aggressive and sort of um, standing up for those who are looking for more independent leanings. Um, with a race this close, we could see a shift um, either towards um, Taiwan or on the path that the state is on right now. It's a close election um, and it's hard to call. Uh, and uh, everybody will be watching Saturday for results that could come out in a matter of hours uh, by Saturday night.
1: All right. Michelle, turning back to Taiwan, Chinese President Xi Jinping had this to say about the unification of China and Taiwan on New Year's Eve two
0: weeks ago. So, Michelle,
1: um, You know, Chinese military has said it will never compromise its position that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China. What has been the reaction in Taiwan to all of these statements and saber rattling?
8: Well, I think you've seen, even though there are different shades of support for whether the U.S. more U.S.-friendly candidate or the more China-friendly candidates, I think most of the, the vast majority of the Taiwanese population just clearly want to kind of maintain a sort of status quo, where they're, they're not so much moving immediately toward independence, but they're also not going to be quickly absorbed into China's orbit again. And I think that's, of course, at odds with the message that President Xi is sending. So it at, at its base, it makes them very uncomfortable to hear these sorts of things, and you know, coming from the Chinese leader. And what we're what we're also following is is how does this translate into you know a sort of interference campaign? And this is something that um, has been a huge concern of the U.S. and others um, to see China kind of meddling in the election in some ways. The past few weeks, we've seen uh, Taiwan talk about a campaign of misinformation, disinformation, social media posts, military exercises. More concretely, balloons floating over the island, there was an air raid siren earlier this week from Taiwan um, because of uh, some of these exercises. And they're all, uh, you know, analysts looking at this uh, are saying this is all just designed to kind of intimidate, um, to coerce uh, you know, voting in a certain direction. Uh, they even had a, an instance where uh, Chinese officials were coercing a rock group to voice support for reunification. So it's, it's coming in a lot of different forms. And, uh, you know, the VP, Lai, who's also a presidential candidate, mentioned that, you know, this is always something that they deal with in Taiwanese elections, certain kind of uh, influence campaigns by the mainland. But um, this year, he says it's the most serious it's ever been. Uh, when we asked the U.S. senior administration official earlier this week about it in a briefing, um, the response was that, you know, will it, the Taiwanese speak for themselves? But they have seen meddling in the sort of information environment in Taiwan, as they put it, um, At the same time, they have full confidence in in Taiwan's democratic process and and don't think that that meddling will determine the
1: outcome. So, Nancy, let me ask you, you're in close touch with U.S. national security officials, defense department officials all the time. Is there any indication that the rhetoric from China has entered a new phase and that Xi Jinping is ready to take military action?
6: I haven't heard that yet. Um, we haven't seen any indication that China's leadership has changed its views towards unification with Taiwan, which she has called inevitable. The Chinese military has been operating at a heightened military tempo since Nancy Pelosi's visit and ebbs and flows, but we haven't seen a marked difference. Having said all that, the event that I think many people are watching – is the election this weekend because I think that will be the best indicator of China's intentions going forward. And nobody knows how they react. Part of that, of course, will depend on the results of the election, but also how China interprets those results and chooses to act, um, not only sort of diplomatically and in its rhetoric, but how it positions itself militarily. So I think one reason we haven't heard a change in sort of um, assessments is because the big event is the one happening Saturday. Mm -hmm.
1: All right. Well, switching to the hot war that is very much happening, it's been nearly two years now, believe it or not, since Russia launched its full scale invasion of Ukraine. This morning, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak visited Ukraine to announce an increase in military aid to the tune of £2.5 billion in the next year. That's an increase of £200 million over the past two years. The reunification
3: of the motherland is a historical inevitability. Compatriots on both sides of the Taiwan Strait should be bound by a common sense of purpose and share in the glory of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation.
1: So, Alex, this aid includes weapons, humanitarian aid, and drones all at a time when U.S. Congress is struggling over whether or not to increase our aid for Ukraine. What is the message that Rishi Sunak is sending by increasing the spending while the U.S. has been unable to do so?
7: Well, I think he's trying to reassure Ukraine because, you know, the world's attention has moved on. Granted, you know, we've been talking about other things so far today for for good reason. There's a lot going on in the world, Israel-Hamas, the Taiwan elections, et cetera. So it, you know if you're the Ukrainian government you're feeling you're not feeling that love as much and of course you're seeing what's going on in congress here in the US and so you're thinking maybe the West's uh, support is drying up so having sunak there effectively voting with his feet and bringing a a massive gift of weapons and humanitarian aid is a sign that you know there's still attention Zelens- uh, president zelensky is actually headed to davos um, next week in order to talk to world leaders and basically Make sure that the Ukrainian situation is still top of mind. And right now, you know, one of the things Zelensky had been pretty good at and has been pretty good at is maintaining support for Ukraine by showing up, by giving speeches, uh, by looking leaders in the eye and saying, you're going to keep supporting us, right? Um, Of course, you know, it's somewhat out of Biden's hands to some extent because of Congress. But by having those kinds of meetings, it's a reminder to – the Sunaks and the Bidens and the others of the world that, hey, you know, you should still keep supporting this war. And as you said, we're heading to the the two-year part and we're sort of at this Game of ping pong, artillery ping pong on the ground, right? That's where everyone keeps saying there's a stalemate. That's somewhat true on the ground. Mm -hmm. It's a different battle uh, at sea, where Russian forces, uh, Russian naval forces, have been pushed back quite a bit. There's not much stalemate there. But point is, for anything to advance, Ukraine still is going to need a lot of help, and Mm -hmm. that's why you have Zelensky constantly making these cases.
1: So, Nancy, this week, Russian officials evacuated 300 residents from the Russian border city of Belgorod after Ukrainian military strikes had rained down on. the city. That was the deadliest Ukrainian attack since Russia's invasion. And it came on December 30th of last year, 25 Russian civilians were killed. Um you know Ukrainian cities and civilian buildings and civilians have been bombed throughout the war by Russia is Ukraine now retaliating in kind um inside Russia Nancy or is this just we think a rare one off and and also I want to ask you 2 years into this war are we any closer to a conclusion
6: well, what we saw uh, preceding that evacuation and the Ukrainian strike was a Russian strike, the biggest one we'd ever seen in Kyiv, And so it, it appeared to be a response to that. To me, what was extraordinary is that the decision to evacuate was one of the few sort of acknowledgments by Russia that the, the, the war in Ukraine poses a threat to its residents. And it was such a demonstrative display of that. You were asking about where we are two years in the war, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think the one way to describe it is stuck. Um, I, I think when people think of um, stalemates, I worry that they think that nothing is happening, but there's a lot of intense fighting happening. Um, as, as we've talked about, we've seen some pretty intense attacks just in the last few weeks. There just hasn't been any advancement on either side to break its opponent's defenses. And it's unclear whether Ukraine and its allies can craft an alternative approach. As Alex rightly noted, we're having this weeks-long discussions about funding um, for for Ukraine. Ukraine's lost thousands of troops, including some of its most skilled and best fighters. And so we're at this point where there's a lot of fighting happening, but we are stuck in terms of seeing any demonstrative progress Mm -hmm. one way or the other. And so there's no frankly indication that there that this war is getting closer to concluding. Mm-hmm.
1: One really painful human um, you know, cost story here on the side of the Ukrainian-Russian um, war is that Ukrainian authorities say that nearly 20,000 Ukrainian children have been deported from their country into Russia since the start of the war. And this week, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a decree that makes it possible to reassign those children Russian citizenship. Michelle, Ukraine this week condemned that decree, but what is the story here? Were these children taken to Russia against their will? What's happened to their parents? What more do we know?
8: Well, it is certainly very terribly sad, and, and very difficult to pinpoint numbers on this. Trying trying to break down who was orphaned or who might have been forcibly taken from living family members. The bottom line, though, is that in the eyes of the in the eyes of the International Criminal Court and Ukraine and others, these are children who have been forcibly deported to Russia amid the war. The ICC last year, they issued an arrest warrant for Putin and the same for at least one other Russian official on these grounds that they were forcibly deporting children. And we know that Russia right now has every reason to use these children as pawns. I mean, for two reasons, basically. By giving them citizenship, uh, they would arguably help Russia avoid others identifying these children as forcibly removed Ukrainians. And also it would help their pretty atrocious demographic issues in Russia right now. We know the Russian military has been decimated. The birth rate is abysmally low, even in a world where so many countries are suffering the same way. So to get a whole swath of of new citizens would be a a big boon economically for them.
1: Hmm. All right, in another part of the world, Pakistan goes to the polls in a general election scheduled for February 8th, which was delayed from last November. And it's looking like a contest that might be won by a familiar face, Pakistan's three time former Prime Minister, Nawaz Sharif. This week, Pakistan's Supreme Court reversed its six year old verdict that had disqualified politicians from running for election if they were found not to be, quote, honest and righteous. The former Prime Minister Sharif has had quite a bit of legal trouble. But last month, Islamabad's high court overturned his 2018 conviction for corruption, for which he had been sentenced to 10 years in prison. That same court acquitted him in another graft case last November. Alex, tell us why Sharif is now looking like a likely winner.
7: Well, his Pakistan Muslim League party is the front runner in these legislative elections. And so he's the most likely to benefit, the fact that he's allowed to, you know, be in in this election at all, um, which is quite a stunning change. I mean, this 6-1 ruling by the Supreme Court really shifts the tide of power right now in Pakistan. You've got, you know, there was a moment where Imran Khan was the prime minister and you had Sharif uh, in legal trouble, and now it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, the
1: military you, has thrown their weight behind Sharif, have it, they not?
7: Precisely. So, And it's really hard – uh, to be in charge in Pakistan if you don't have the military behind you. a lot of, I'm pretty sure every modern prime minister has not finished their term because um, usually there's some sort of change uh, in, in either military thinking or civilian thinking. So um, it's a massive shift of fortunes for uh, Sharif and his party, and it could uh, really just upend politics in Pakistan for the years to come.
1: Nancy, another former Pakistani prime minister, international cricket star, Imran Khan, has been behind bars since August in a corruption case, and he's been disqualified from running for office. But a recent court case cleared the way for his party's symbol, the cricket bat, to appear on the ballot. Uh, Tell us about what his chances are, and is the election being regarded as free and fair?
6: Well, I thought Alex described it so beautifully. I'll, I'll just add that Imran Khan wrote from prison this week for The Economist that he thinks his party being muzzled and that the election can't be trusted because he's out of favor with the army. We've also heard from independent observers who say they're increasingly concerned that the election won't be fair. The U.S. has called for free and fair elections. Um... I, I think the challenge um, we've seen in Pakistan in the past is that its judiciary has a long history of passing and then overturning rulings that favor the political party of the army it backs. That all this is happening just one month before the election certainly suggests that the army is putting its uh, fingers on the scale and tipping it in favor um, of Sharif. And so is that free and fair? Um it doesn't appear to um, be so in the in the purest sense of the term, given the amount of machinations happening from the court, from the military ahead of this critical election.
1: Mm-hmm. We've also got some other worldly news this week. If you want to talk about things that are even beyond international, the first American spacecraft headed for the moon in 50 years might not make it there. After all, the Peregrine lunar lander was launched on Monday, but it's expected to run out of fuel before it reaches the moon's surface because a propellant leak. Michelle, what went wrong here?
8: yeah well I'm a big space fan and I think for anyone who has an interest and fascination with these sorts of operations this is sad news I, the astrobiotic the the Pittsburgh based company that created the spacecraft they conceded a pretty big propulsion problem in space uh, shortly after it, it got there with the module um, and that likely caused it to, to sort of start uh, running out of fuel um, they posted on social media at some point this week that they suspected that there was a valve problem it caused a rush of high pressure helium and that ruptured the tank uh, but the have a full review after the mission is done. We, we do know that in the meantime, the module is able to collect um, some valuable data that NASA is also monitoring quite closely. So as far as, you know, where this goes from here, we'll have to see. They have, uh, you know, I saw yesterday, they said it had about 48 hours to go uh, with uh, with fuel and they were about 94% of lunar distance at that mm-hmm. point.
1: All right. Time for my favorite part of the show. It's reporter's notebook time. Nancy, a few minutes before we wrap, what stories are you watching for the coming week?
6: Well, the one that sort of um, hijacked the week and I think um, is not done yet is um, um, the fate of the secretary of defense, whether he'll be back at work, what impact – all this tumult over um, his absence has on his place in national security um, and whether this continues to be a discussion that sort of um, is a patina over all these um, issues that we have been talking about over the past hour. Mm -hmm.
1: Alex?
7: Uh, As a Patriots fan, I do care about the Bill Belichick leaving, but uh, (laughs) as a soccer fan, we're killing Mbappe goes. I think what I'm interested though is the the surprising backlash to the Houthi strikes yesterday from uh, Democrats and some Republicans. There were congressional leaders that, that backed it, but whether this ends up being a political problem for Biden he 's already facing democratic backlash from Israel Hamas, so will there be a stink about you know, his legal authorization for last night 's strikes
1: michelle what 's in your notebook?
8: Well, as my NFL team is not in the playoffs, I <laughs> can see that i 'm pretty laser focused on the Taiwan elections and not just the, the vote this weekend but what it means for some seventy economies that will vote this year and charges of foreign government
1: interference in, in, in some of those major ones that we 're looking at mm-hmm. All right. Thank you to Michelle Jamrisco, Bloomberg Senior White House Reporter, Alex Ward, National Security Reporter at Politico, Nancy Youssef, National Security Reporter at The Wall Street Journal. A big thanks to all of you. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Kellen Quigley. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand, with help this week from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Angiano, produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Indira Lakshmanan. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort.